Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Marsal Gavalda. Marsal is head of machine learning for the commerce platform at Square. Marsal, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thank you so much, Sam. Uh, very excited to be in your podcast. Uh, it's great to have an opportunity to speak with you, and I'm looking forward to digging into you know, how ML is working at Square, what you're up to. Uh, but before we do that, share a little bit about your background. Uh, what got you interested in machine learning, and uh, you know, what, what are some of your interest areas? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to share my my sort of life story here. I grew up in Barcelona, <laughs> Catalonia, Spain, right? Uh -huh. Which actually is in the news still quite a bit because there's kind of an unresolved conflict between Catalonia and the rest of Spain. And a lot of it is based on language. So growing up there, I got very interested in languages because I wondered, you know, how come half of my classmates speak Catalan and the other half speak Spanish? Mm. When if you look at the history, right, as the Roman Empire extended throughout Europe, they were all supposed to be speaking Latin, right? And yet mm -hmm. Latin gave rise to Italian in one place, Romanian, French, Portuguese, Spanish, Catalan, all the languages that we now call Latin or Romance languages. So that got me kind of curious about where do languages come from and how do they evolve? What is common across all languages? What is unique? Um, take the word for window, right? In Catalan, window is finestra, which actually mm -hmm. is the exact same word as in Italian, uh, finestra. Yeah very close to the French fenêtre, right? Even close to the German fenster, even though German is not even a Latin language. Whereas in Spanish, I don't know, Sam, if you know any Spanish. It's ventana, right? Exactly, yes. <laughs> um, and where, where is the etymology of ventana? Where does it come from? Mm. Ventana comes from viento, uh, which means wind. Um, and okay. it's super interesting because the, the word uh, origin of uh, in English of window also comes from like old Germanic wind aug. So, like a wind's eyelet, a little hole for the wind to go through, um, which if it's, you know, what would you call now something for air or wind to go through that doesn't have a glass? Um, you would call that a vent, right? Mm -hmm. So you have window and ventana, all these sort of related to wind. And all, on the other hand, there's finestra, right? Which This apparently... might be the first episode of my language podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's expand our horizons. <laughs> Yeah, you know what? It's interesting that uh, that you're starting off with this conversation about language is something that uh, I'm super excited about. I don't spend nearly enough time studying it, but the this conversation around the etymology of words reminds me of a book that I read, The History of the English Language, that kind of goes through. The thing that I remember most vividly from that book is this concept of the great language shift. I don't know if if something similar happened in the Rome, uh, the or sorry, the great vowel shift. If something vowel similar shift. happened in the Romance languages, but in English there was this period of time in which the vowels all shifted in the sounds that they made. That made um, and it's apparent when you look at like Beowulf. Uh, another mm -hmm. writing and you see these words that don't really make any sense until you realize that there was this vowel shift anyway i, I just yeah, yeah. and, and the thing off, super, yeah and one very uh, uh, interesting thing about english is that it basically has this duality of vocabulary because uh, english is a germanic language but then it had a huge influence of latin through french right yeah and so you get these pairs you know what is the difference between freedom and liberty 
uh, well, it's really kind of the same. It's just, you know, freedom is a Germanic German one and liberty one, uh, is, is, the, right. is the Roman. Um, yeah. On the other hand, there's also these super fun pairs like pig and pork or cow and beef, where the animal, the word for the animal is the Germanic one, whereas the one for um, for the for the for the dish or the or the cooked thing is the uh, the Latin one. Even the difference between kitchen and cuisine, right? Look mm -hmm. at that. Is cuisine is just kitchen in French, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But so word is endlessly uh, Languages are endlessly fascinating. There's also not just the words, but also the constituents. Like um, in Japanese, you you say the girl a book reads, right? Mm -hmm. You put the verb at the end, which incidentally is also how Yoda talks. Um, so it just appears to kind of it lends more gravitas if you at the end of the, of the sentence the verb place <laughs> um uh, but of course um so but so the interesting thing is that all languages have nouns and verbs which is not surprising because this is how we humans perceive the world there's sort of static objects like a cup and then there's actions you pour into the cup or you drink from the mm -hmm. cup right but then the way in which you put these building blocks together is more is more arbitrary uh, but of course, fundamentally, um, all languages have the same expressive power. Um, it's just that certain languages tend to put uh, more emphasis in certain aspects. Like another cool example is uh, in Chinese, you cannot just say brother or sister. You have to specify whether it's older brother or younger sister, right? There's mm -hmm. like four different words for, for sibling. So an interest in kind of a, a political interest in language drove an interest in languages broadly it sounds like and is that that's right what brought so, you into machine learning yes and well so 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 that's one aspect i've always been interested in and i've tried to like learn a few languages etc i sort of can mumble my way through a few um but then the other piece what is are the technology ah uh, don't put me on the spot but basically uh so catalan and spanish german uh -huh. english uh and then chinese and japanese uh, a little bit i can know some some basic stuff and then Actually, other languages like French and Italian, Portuguese, just through sort of Romans osmosis, right? It's they're so close that you can basically okay. uh, understand. Um, cool. Yeah. Um, but then the other piece is sort of technology. Um, one day, my dad brought home an HP 85, one of the early home computers, uh -huh. um, a beautifully designed machine, right? So the, a CRT monochrome screen, uh, um, um, magnetic cartridge for storage, a thermal printer, this built-in keyboard, and then some manuals that were very well done and taught you how to program at that okay. time that was in, in basic. So I, that's how I sort of got hooked into uh, coding and, and, and I ended up uh, studying computer science as an undergrad um, in Barcelona at the, the UPC, the, the Universidad Politecnica de Catalunya, uh, which is, I think now goes by Barcelona Tech. Um, but when I finished, I realized that there was this sort of nascent field at the time called computational linguistics, um, now better known as sort of maybe language technologies, which is this attempt of getting computer systems to understand aspects of human language. And then I thought, wow, that's absolutely amazing. I can sort of um, merge, combine my two interests in, in languages and, and technology. So after um, my undergrad in, at, in, in Barcelona, I did one year in Germany at the University of Karlsruhe, and then I came to the US for grad school. Um, I was at uh, Carnegie Mellon for quite a few years because I first did a master's in computational linguistics, and then I stayed for the for a PhD in computer science and uh, in language technologies. Okay. So awesome. I started working on things like uh, you know speech recognition, machine translation. Um, some of the early what we're calling sort of end-to-end -end, uh, speech translation, which was doing the recognition and then a, a fair amount of uh, a minimum amount of understanding, so that you could sort of generate into a target language. Um, 
something that now is you know more common but 25 years ago was sort of a pioneering work with with Alex Weibel, uh, the Janus project and, and some other researchers. Okay, nice, nice. And I've got a note here that you went to CMU with Manuela Veloso. We've talked, you know, obviously yes. lots of folks on the yes, podcast of course. have gone through CMU. Yeah. But were you, th- yeah. were you there at the same time? Do you know one? Yeah, I, I had her as a, as, a, as a teacher, as a professor, of course, yes. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, yeah, uh, I think um, like some like just like ML or some, I remember an assignment that I did for Manuela Veloso, which was to uh, automatically create uh, crossword puzzles. Not so not to solve them, but to create them. Right? Okay. Um, that was one of the assignments I remember. Yeah. Oh, uh, awesome. Yeah. Cool. And so, how long have you been at Square? So at Square, it's about it's three, three years now. Um, I did some. Uh, I, I was so I spent some time doing like speech analytics for for like call centers. And then I moved more into a kind of the startup world. Uh, it was with MindMeld, with 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 Yik Yak, and then three years ago, um, I together with some other team from Yik Yak, we joined uh, Square. Okay, and um, you're particularly focused on uh, commerce at Square. I imagine there are uh, lots of, of different ways that machine learning is used at the company. But what is the the you know, are yes. there a handful of core use cases for ML at uh, right. commerce? Yeah, yeah. The cool thing about Square is that um, sort of machine learning is foundational to the company, right? The reason we can be so open as a platform and allow for um, anybody to sign up uh, to be a Square seller or even a Square developer through our uh, API um, is also because we have the mechanisms in place to watch out for bad actors, right? Anytime that you deal with money. Um, you have to watch out for all kinds of fraud um, and, and and risk. And so to some extent, risk management is sort of the, the foundational piece of the application of ML at Square. Um, but then over the course of the years, because we're not just the people know about the, the little white reader that, you know, converts a smartphone into a, into a credit card uh, or a, a, a point of sale uh, system, um, but actually um, the, we've expanded quite a lot the uh, the offerings in terms of products and services. You can run a small business just using Square with things like um, inventory management and even team management. We can do payroll and taxes for mm-hmm. for your employees. Um, so that on on the one hand, um, uh, uh, obviously it's 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 a it's an excellent uh, 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 way of helping our sellers. On the other, from a risk perspective, you also have to watch out for sort of new avenues, uh, new avenues for uh, for uh, sort of malicious users. Um, I'll give, I can give you a, a cool example, which is um, we have a product called Square Marketing, right, which allows our sellers to have a conversation with their buyers through email campaigns, and we provide some nicely designed templates so that they can uh, show their latest uh, products or loyalty program, etc except that in a couple of occasions, we saw that that was being misused as phishing attempt, right? So someone would craft uh, uh, what looked like was, was supposed to be an email marketing campaign that actually contained uh, you know, some, some link to, uh, to some, some nefarious uh, phishing site. So what happens there, sort of ML to the rescue, right? So we quickly develop a classifier so that uh, before an email gets sent, it gets inspected. And then we look at, what are um, some signals here that tells us that something is off? Um, and of course, you can think of 
well, usually uh, there's a button associated with that sort of with a call to action, with a, with a phishing attempt. So we can inspect the URL and, and compare whether the domain of the URL matches the URL of the seller if they have a website. If it doesn't, that's a bit of a, a red flag. But interestingly, and you know, going back to the to the language, just by looking at a couple of examples, you can see that the language being used in the phishing attempts is very different from the normal uh, sort of uh, marketing campaign. In fact, it tends to be much more negative, right? It says, "Problem with your account? Uh, go, you know, go fix it." Um, and so, interestingly, um, as I'm sure you know, there's this technique in natural language processing called sentiment analysis, where you can take a bunch of text and basically map it onto a single number. Know, minus one sad to plus one happy. So the sentiment polarity is a signal that we now use for this classifier, um, and, um, um, and not by itself, but in sort of conjunction with with other other features. Interesting. Um, and, and of course, now be, so I, I tell I always say you know don't tell this to the bad guys, right? Otherwise, they're going to adapt and start crafting marketing campaigns, saying uh, wonderful we would love opportunity. You to press this button so we could have. That's you. right. <laughs> That's right. Wouldn't you want to re to freshen up your password? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but so the 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 overall point here is that anytime that you have a new product, anytime that you have a new API. You obviously have to also think about, you know, how could this be misused, and how can we sort of protect against that? Um, so, managing risk remains uh, one of the sort of largest applications of ML at Square. Um, another one, though, which is also very interesting, is just being able to be better at automating operations um, um, and being able to, for example, do more uh, more accurate uh, marketing campaigns. Um, as our number of products grows. Um, it's also important to be able to let uh, a certain subset of our sellers know about that new product, the ones that are going to be most interested in, in them, right? So a good example is uh, Square Appointments. Square Appointments, uh, if you're a hairdresser um, and you don't want to be on the phone all the time, you know, are you open at three? Can I come in tomorrow? Um, you'd rather have a self-serve external portal where people can just, a calendar where people can book them, themselves, right? So that's exactly what... Square Appointments is, and actually you're offering this for free uh, for, for just for an initial location. So we've had a lot of success. Um, but then the next question is, among our millions of sellers, who would benefit the most from Square Appointments, right? Because we don't want to send like a mass email that people are going to consider spam if they're not, if they're just a little kiosk uh, and they're not like, um, uh, like booking doesn't make sense for that particular seller. Mm -hmm. So obviously we can do that by sort of what we call MCC, merchant category code, um, uh, but also there's some cool ways of kind of inspecting the items and services that are in our seller's catalogs to understand whether there are certain things that are being booked by time, right? Is there any place in the description of your item where you mention one hour or, or a half an hour? Well, that's a perfect candidate for uh, for square appointments. And so we're able to sort of use also ML to have a, a much more targeted um, uh, marketing campaigns. And so that's kind of automated operations. Um, and then there's, category? yes, and then there's a third category um, which you can think of driving sort of uh, product features, uh, something that is visible uh, to the seller, right? Um, and so a couple of examples are, uh, we now are able to make suggestions in your catalog, like based on what type of business you are, um, or what type of items you already have in your catalog, we're able to sort of suggest um, something um, that other products that you may want to carry. Or a simple thing is when you create a new item, let's say you're a, you're a bakery, 
oh, which by the way, it's interesting. We can also know what type of business you are, obviously based on your name, right? If you're if you're Josephine's Bakery, you're a bakery. Also, this is a, a true story. If you're, um, what was the, oh yeah, uh, Rolling Scones, um, you're also <laughs> a bakery. <laughs> and then, um, so we're able to, based on your name and certainly based on the type of items that you sell, have a I love that good name. Where is that business? Um, it's it's a real bakery somewhere. I'm not sure. I think maybe Seattle. Uh, we'll have okay. uh, we can look it up. So we know what type of business you are based also on a little bit of sort of this sort of behavior, right? Not just the name, but also uh, the 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 items that you sell and 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 the ticket sizes, etc. Um, so um, but then uh, when you create an item, let's say you're a bakery and you create a new item called croissant, well we know that there's going to be certain very common variations like plain almond chocolate right and we actually uh <laughs> what you don't like croissants no i was thumbs down plain almond medium uh, chocolate up. And then, yes yes it's a progression yeah yeah uh, yes and so we kind of auto you were able to auto suggest that um because those are sort of you know, we because we understand a, a, a bit of the domain, um, but in a way that is sort of fully automated. So that's one example, uh, suggestions in the catalog. And then another very uh, sort of uh, new area where we're just uh, start, starting with is with uh, what we call the Square Assistant. Um, this okay. is the, the result of an acquisition we did last year of Eloquent Labs. Uh, we now call it the Conversations Team. And they recently released Square Assistant right now for appointments, um, which means that when you when a buyer gets a reminder uh, of one of these square appointments, they can now reply and say, "Oh yes, I'll be there," or "Oh shoot, can uh, can I come in uh, tomorrow instead?" Um, mm -hmm. And right now, so the assistant is able to respond on the seller's behalf um, about the uh, the appointments. Um, and so this is kind of a, a new area where um, I think there's a lot of potential. So when you have a business, you know, for which ML is so fundamental. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about how you kind of manage a portfolio of, of projects and how you kind of organize around that. You know, it's very different from, you know, an enterprise that is, you know, has some other business and is mm -hmm. thinking about how can we, you know, take advantage of machine learning. Let's spin up a project here, spin up a, spin up a project there. Right. You know, here you've got, you know, I, I can imagine, you know, every, you know, every product, every feature effort you're thinking about you know, an engineer is thinking in the back of their head is, you know, is my goal best served by machine learning or something simpler, you know, and that might have you with a lot of, you know, places where you're trying to have a lot of impact across the, the, the product portfolio. How do you, right. uh, well, yes, yes. So what I would say to that is it's certainly the case that at Square, I guess we're sort of in a, in a, in a sort of lucky situation where um, sort of, Technology and ML was was um, understood as a kind of a core component from the from the get go, but for any other organization, um, I think there's some uh, steps that anybody can take. Uh, which is the first one is just kind of more awareness, right? So provide some um, broad machine learning training so that people at least sort of understand a little bit of the concepts of how do you have a, this. So the key thing about machine learning is that it's something that learns from the data, learns from experience, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so um, what we do even at Square is we have uh, sort of a, a, a training that we call ML for Everyone, um, where uh, sort of we sort of teach these concepts. And then we follow that up with a brainstorming session. Like now that we know a little bit about ML, let's think about how could ML help 
your team or, or or your customers and we come up with specific examples right okay. um, and actually it's cool to also use the you know andrew ung's uh sort of heuristic about what ml can do like he says any task that a human can do in in about a second of thought about about one second of cognitive effort is something that we can probably automate right um mm -hmm. and of course it's not a perfect heuristic like you know uh, chess playing we would already take way longer than a second to decide the next move yeah. um but it gives us a little bit of some, you know, some parameters. Um, and so that gives us a lot of ideas to our teams. And then of course uh, you need to kind of uh, aggregate and prioritize, um, but that typically leads. So a lot of these um, ideas are very good, but then you realize that they depend on the availability of data. So the third point is from an so organizational perspective to treat data as a first class citizen, um, meaning that it's not, that you have some sort of analytics as an afterthought of some, you know, kind of looking over um, and trying to, you know, look at some logs, but rather um, have the data already have a, when you design a functionality, when you design a product or an API, already have in mind which data is this uh, service going to consume, and most importantly, which which data this service is will be able to generate, so that other services can easily use that data. Right, so there's quite a bit of work in terms of um, standardizing how we produce that data, and then also kind of the data infrastructure to have kind of a common repository of that data, and not just the raw data, but then also have you sort of aggregate it into uh, sort of useful features. Meaning, for example, in terms of transactions, you don't have to um, some for in some cases you don't need to know every single transaction about a seller. You just want to know what their average weekly uh you know processing volume is right uh, and so you aggregate that into a signal and you can put that into what we call a feature store that then can be used by by other teams and, and other other um, even other ml models so once you have this sort of data as a first class citizen then it's much easier to start sort of weaving machine learning um into your kind of products and processes by making use of of, of this data and then all of this obviously also there's all, all this talk about um, and necessary talk about sort of ethical AI ML principles um, and, and also being aware of regulations like GDPR in the European Union or CCPA in California, that you want to make sure that these systems sort of are, the technical term is you need to show that uh, they don't have a so-called disparate impact on protected classes, right? Uh, but it basically means that that they're sort of neutral, and 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 there there's a there's a side where um, so when you create a certain model, there are certain features that you're not, you're not you don't want to look at. Uh, at the same time, from a compliance perspective, you still need to know what those features are to show that there's no disparate impact. Uh, mm -hmm. But that's done by different different teams. Yeah. Okay. So so if you do that, so provide broad ML training, brainstorming uh, about what ML can do for you, um, treat data as for first class citizen then you can start doing some cool um, ML-driven. Initially, it could just be some like smart defaults, personalization, um, and then over time, you can have almost like entire divisions, like Square Capital, uh, which is sort of the, the, the arm within Square where we facilitate loans to our sellers. You can basically argue that that's pretty much all uh, you know driven by ML. because um, And in fact, um, Square Capital is a great example where we can really show that um, the purpose, uh, the, the over, overarching purpose at Square, um, we call it economic empowerment, 
Um, and, and that means making sure that um, making it easier for everyone to be able to participate in the economy and to have uh, like very clear understanding of, of um, what the sort of the, what the processing fees are, what well, like uh, exactly what is expected um, from, uh, and there's, there's no sort of hidden uh, fees or, or issues like that. Um, and so one of the, um, a good example of this is how Square Capital just looks at how a seller is doing within our platform. Uh, we don't necessarily need to go, go out and check your, you know, FICO score or your, your history outside. Uh, yeah. We just look at, you know, how, how you've been uh, sort of doing within Square. Um, and that has allowed us to, uh, to basically um, facilitate these loans to many sellers to, to expand their business. Uh, on this idea of data as a first-class citizen, does that automatically mean just kind of save everything? Or uh, are you still needing to be very selective as to you know what you save, how yeah. long you maintain right. it, compliance right. implications, right. all of that? Right. How do you balance yeah. uh, those yeah. considerations? Yeah, there's that. Yeah, that, that's a good point. You, you, I mean, your, you know, your sort of your initial instinct might be, well, let's just you know save everything, but that quickly becomes unmanageable, right? Um, uh, if you look at the the log files generated by every single service, and we have, you know, hundreds if not thousands of services. So even there's some like operational uh, logs and stuff that you just retain for for a little bit. Um, um, but then there's the the important piece, more of the, kind of the semantics of, um, you know, this user logged in and they had these transactions. That is certainly um, uh, recorded. Um, so there is a little bit of um, uh, certainly sort of filtering of of the important uh, uh, actions. Um, and then there's also a lot of what I was mentioning before of kind of uh, converting these raw data into more more useful aggregates. Yeah, I'm still curious about, you know, given all of the places that you are, um, you know, trying to make an impact at Square, you know, how does your particular team, you run a, a, an ML organization as opposed to a, a engineering, you know, a particular feature, you know, or I'm, I'm trying to get at the relationship between your organization and the product teams and you know are you kind of embedding people are you right. um kind of a centralized organization that you know that takes on ownership of ml capabilities you know that get plugged into other features like how does all that work mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's a good question because it's it's really a bit of a fluid situation um so a couple of things there first of all square is very much product oriented um and so ultimately what really drives the uh, adoption of machine learning is how well it can serve the ultimate function of you know uh, overall is economic empowerment make the the, yep. the life of our sellers easier and create uh, sort of you know in, in the parlance of these sort of remarkable or delightful experiences um, that really make it sort of almost fun to use you know a square software um so that is the ultimate uh, sort of driver and so we see ml as an enabler to that um, and the question about how exactly do you do that? So th there's both sort of kind of vertical and horizontal in the sense that, first of all, we do want every engineer at Square to be at least aware of machine learning, right? In the same way that you want every engineer to be infosec conscious, right? Aware of information security issues. And when you develop an API, how do you check that, that you know, you're not being hacked? 
we also uh, encourage all the all, all engineers to um, get uh, more familiar with what ML is capable of. Now, we do also have teams that are sort of, you know, highly skilled uh, data scientists and, and ML engineers, um, and they can sort of drive uh, more of that. But typically, so we have some teams that are almost like all data science ML, but then the other idea that, that we're increasingly doing is kind of in the same way that you, in order to have a full stack team, you need back end and you need front end. Well, you will also um, add some like ML uh, sort of uh, expert or some engineer that uh, has uh, a more interest in ML to kind of balance the team. Is there a typical project or a way that you engage with these product groups to help deliver new ML capability? Yeah. So um, yes, the, typically there's um, there's an assessment of kind of the, the backlog, like what are all the features are already sort of planning to do. But then we also do these brainstorming sessions to kind of bubble up uh, some new ideas. And then of course, there's this um, interesting sort of um, assessment of the idea in terms of well, what is the expected impact, uh, but also how feasible is it from a ML perspective, right? And also, do we have enough data uh, for the model to be able to to make a, a, um, a good decision? And so um, if we go through a bit of that, um, and then we kind of select the sort of the, the most uh, promising projects. And um, and then we typically, um, what we, a good model that we have found is that the, the ML team is responsible Responsible for kind of the back end, kind of computing these suggestions um, or being able to respond to all these different um, uh, messages from buyers, and then the the product team that owns that 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 sort of that's the surface of the, the the product surface that we're talking about, kind of ends up owning the feature, but basically they make calls to the to the back end um, that is uh, managed by by an ML team. You know, one of the the issues that I think that that kind of relationship raises is that, you know, there's so much crossover in terms of the way machine learning originated information is surfaced to users. And, um, you know, do you, uh, you know, how, you know, do you express the, a degree of certainty, you know, on a probabilistic, you know, determination? And if so, how, you know, right. there are all kinds of design issues that come into, yeah. There. Yeah. you know, yeah. something that you, you think a lot about there or mm -hmm. how, yes. how do you approach that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. As I mentioned, so fundamental to how we approach the development of an ML driven feature is how is it going to look like? What's the experience going to be? Mm -hmm. both when the model is accurate and most importantly, what happens when the model fails, right? Mm -hmm. And failing, there's two ways of failing. Failing because there's no suggestion that is above a certain confidence <laughs> threshold, yeah. in which case they're like, there's no suggestion. Um, that's one situation. And then the other one, which is obviously worse, is what happens when the suggestion is incorrect, right? And there's different uh, degrees of that. So for example, in the case of item suggestion, you know, what is the worst that could happen? Well, you know, you're a bakery, and instead of suggesting a croissant, we suggest a uh, sock, right? Well, a little bit odd, but not the end of the world, right? So in that case, we can be a bit more lenient. On the other hand, <clears throat> for something like, you know, the, the 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 credit, you know, issuing a loan or not, we have to be uh, quite accurate in terms of modeling precision versus recall and the cost of a false positive. For example, a seller that would not pay us back versus a false negative, 
a seller that would have benefited, but we didn't issue a loan. Um, and so uh, ultimately, it's it's kind of a, a business decision, but it's highly informed by the model and being able to kind of set the, the, uh, the correct operating point. To your point, it's certainly something that we have sort of front and center is, is, is the design of the feature and being able to to make sure that that overall the product and the and the feature is still useful even when the model makes a mistake. Um, yeah, um, and so that's can go a little bit about uh, so so the the sort of these four aspects that we think about when designing an, an ML driven feature. Uh, certainly, the, the design and the actual the UI and the um, and the and the different sort of experience. Um, the other one is is the modeling, right? So. Um, how can we make the model more accurate? How do we make sure that it actually improves over time? Um, and that typically means that we also have um, kind of a, a product analytics uh, layer that kind of looks at how the adoption of that feature and how often those suggestions get accepted or not. And that feeds back in, into the model. And then the other piece is, is sort of engineering, right? Uh, sometimes you may have a very complex model, but then when you need to run it, not for one user, but for millions of users, then you suddenly realize that that maybe you need something a little bit simpler so that it's, it's actually, you know, computationally tractable. I'm curious when you kind of look across your portfolio of models, what is the, uh, you know, what's the technology mix, you know, the Square is obviously working with a lot of kind of traditional tabular data. Does that mean you're tending to use, you know, more traditional techniques or do you have a significant uh, deep learning footprint? How do you think about right. the right. technology landscape? And yeah, yeah. Well, so it's interesting because on a per task basis, you always want to start with the simplest model possible, right? Uh, it's sort of, uh, um, very sort of alluring to say, oh, we're going to move everything to deep learning. Um, but in fact, if taking uh, uh, you know a, a weighted average of, the of what happened in the last two weeks gives you a good sense, um, you don't need a super complex model. Um, and certainly, when we started, you know, now the company is eleven years old. Um, there wasn't even like deep learning at the time. So um, certainly, some of the models are you know like simpler. Uh, you know, like the XG boost, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But over time now, we basically, we also have some very sophisticated models that uh, do use things like, uh, you know, RNNs and, and CNNs. Um, but we always sort of compare and contrast, kind of making sure that sort of the additional complexity is worth it um, um, and, and that uh, the accuracy actually goes up. Are, are there any particular examples of places where you found that the, the additional complexity was justified because the problem was, you know, that, you know, interesting or, or complex or nuanced? Yes. Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you a relatively simple example. But uh, going back to these item suggestions, um, we basically, uh, you know, rather than um, uh, trying to do some like simple, I don't know, like TFIDF, uh, you know, like, like word frequencies and stuff, we just trained our own embeddings, right? Uh, so we applied something similar to Word2Vec um, for in the description of the items. So we, we have usually an item has a category like pastry, the item is the croissant, and then the variations are in your favorite order, chocolate, almond, plain. Although some people call it butter instead of plain. So to make it less plain, they call it butter. Yeah. <laughs> 
And so, but so you put all of these, you know, these millions of, of descriptions together and you train uh, a, a word to vec, which is basically you learn these vector representations in this hyperdimensional space that is very sort of semantically uh, true to the semantics. So interestingly, when we do that, we realize that even though say small and large are kind of opposites of each other in general English, within the context of these item catalogs, small and large are actually semantically very close and, and literally they are geometrically close in this hyperdimensional vector space. And that is because in this case, both small and large encode a value for the attribute size, right? Which can be applied to a coffee or to a t-shirt. And so this is how we kind of approach some of more sophisticated models, uh, but we kind of make sure that that, that, that it works. And also one thing to add is we recently, so Square recently acquire, acquired DESA from uh, from Toronto, where, where they have a lot of uh, deep learning expertise. In fact, they were famous for uh, some uh, cool sort of deep, deep fakes. Um, and so we have a lot of ideas about how to apply some of more, more of these uh, sophisticated techniques to both the, the Square the Square Seller POS and also to Square Cash, the Cash app. What kind of tooling and technology platforms have you established to allow your data scientists to you know, move more quickly, be more agile, get models into production more uh, repeatedly? Yeah, this is um, also evolving. Um, as you can imagine, in the beginning, um, it's um, and also because Square is fairly decentralized, uh, we have sort of different teams exploring different solutions. Yeah. But uh, it's also a combination of we have our own data centers, but we also use quite a bit of cloud, both AWS, GCP. Um, and so you could, roughly speaking, uh, we do a lot of the training and model development in the cloud. Uh, but when it comes time to serve, we still serve from our from our data centers, um, uh, not you know not not as an absolute, but as you know kind of overall. Um, and then in terms of um, making it easy for uh, internally to uh, that, that proximity to to feature data or some other factor that has you has that split. Um, yeah, also kind of historical reason, um, and like we. We do have, uh, for some of the core services, we do want to maintain sort of full control. Um, uh, we have uh, a good record of, uh, of sort of availability and, and we want to uh, maintain that. And uh, and then it, we have kind of a, a platform team um, that is developing some things like, you know, uh, hosted Python notebooks um, and and some uh, feature store um, and, uh, and, and some uh, data infrastructure that is sort of used across all the teams. And then each team also has a, but the, so each team also has some sort of the freedom to use slightly different, you know, tech stacks depending on on their preferences. But we do have a very sort of active internal sort of community where we get together um, every week and we sort of share the different projects across the the, the different teams and, and units so that people are aware of of sort of best practices and 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 we can collaborate. Are the folks in your org primarily engineers or data scientists or a mix? Yeah, it's it's a mix because at the end of the day, we're still shipping features, right? And yeah. so we can partner with product teams um, or to some extent, we now also have ML heavy teams that end up being full stack because that's also maybe a faster path um, to, uh, to, to uh, uh, productizing a feature. Um, a good example is is this uh, conversations team, right? That is responsible for Square Assistant. They are extremely sort of ML AI heavy, 
but now they also have uh, you know front end engineers to to help them uh, get the product out faster. And, and so when you think about that spectrum of um, you know ML heaviness or or readiness and kind of a role or an organization that's focused on ML, you know, that's ML in the, in the name, like head of ML, you know, being your title, like is ultimately like, do you think that your role is to put yourself out of a job by making the product teams, you know, so self-sufficient that, you know, it's ML is a kind of a corp capability. And if so, like, you know, what's the timeline on that? Or do you, do you think that, standalone ML organizations are kind of long-term, you know, have a long-term sustainable role? And if so, kind of what do you think that is? Right. Yeah, I do like a lot the idea of basically increasing the overall um, uh, skill set of, of, of engineers and product managers and designers about ML. And mm-hmm. so ultimately, that is my goal. To, um, that doesn't mean, though, that obviously there's going to be always a core that is sort of more following the latest developments and doing some research of their own. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that's uh, certainly to make a, a product feature successful, you cannot have too much of a separation between ML and product, right? It has to be uh, more embedded. I mean, it's certainly been amazing to see, you know, how quickly kind of innovation jumps from pure research academia into commercial environments. Um, and, you know, your typical kind of, yeah, I guess just comparing it to, you know, other kind of technology waves that, you know, we've seen like mobile and cloud and these other things, like they didn't necessarily require people to read papers in order to, you know, have a, a an impact. Whereas, you know, with machine learning, you know, I'm, you know, when I'm talking to people doing kind of practical things to push a business forward, that often involves, you know, being under uh, being aware of kind of the latest developments and research, and using those to to push the the kick the ball forward, push the needle forward, whatever the right analogy is. Push the envelope. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see that as well? Yes. Um, so to some extent, I mean, obviously, there it's amazing to have uh, people that are super excited and following the latest research, and we do have you know paper reading groups um, that 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 some of us participate in. Having said that, I would actually argue that there is also beginning to be quite a strong sort of a democratization process of ML. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you look at what the sort of the usual suspects offer um, in terms of ML capabilities, they started with some basic, oh, we can do model hosting for you, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But now it's not just model hosting, but basically there's some like ready-made models that you don't even need to like train yourself or, 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 or uh, uh, you didn't, don't even need to have a, almost like a training set. You can use sort of off the shelf uh, things for say, recognizing the, the license plates, right? Or, or analyzing driver's license. Um, so to some extent, it's also going to be much easier in the future to use some of these models. And, and it's almost just going to put these building blocks together, right? Have teams at Square built products on third party you know, AI as a service types of models? So, yeah, typically not. Typically, um, because we are actually very protective of our data, right? So um, we typically, uh, like, do our own models. Um, Although, I mean, for certain, you know, explorations outside of the core business, uh, certainly, we, you know, we we, we kind of 
play with, have, have some prototypes with, uh, with some external models. Um, I'm interested. I have more questions about uh, kind of the, you know, all the stuff that we talked about, the relationship between your group and others and kind of the tooling and platform. Um, you know, maybe a good place to, to, to go to start to wind down is, um, you know, just in terms of the things you've learned um, kind of building and you know, what was was the team small when you arrived or did you inherit a team even or did you build it up from yeah. scratch or um well this specific team um the commerce email i i right yeah i i that that one i i sort of i started as a you know as, as a, a single person and then and then sort of growing growing over time i think the most interesting lesson is um there's certainly a lot of interest in how ml can improve the you know the 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 day to day of of both internal teams and and um, and our sellers and and, and customers, um, but of course the the fun part is kind of identifying which projects are going to be the most relevant and be able to do some quick prototyping to kind of either validate or realize that that may not be the, uh, a good path forward. So being able to kind of do some quick iterations is is important. And the other thing was. As in any organization, there's always ways to improve the data quality, right? So, so not just the kind of the, the infrastructure and the pipelines, but also uh, the type of data that is uh, that is logged and and how it is logged, so that um, other teams basically increase the, the the clarity of the semantics about uh, what that data is, uh, meaning. This team called this field, uh, you know, item description. Um, but what do you mean by item description? Because there's there's the category, there's the variation. Does it include the price? Uh, so different people may have different assumptions about what that field means. Um, and so also being able to have a kind of a consistent semantics across services and teams. Um, this is, uh, you know, I'm not saying that we've solved it, but this is a sort of uh, ongoing and something that, that we've made uh, huge uh, advances on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned uh, kind of being thoughtful about the types of projects that you go after. One of the the often recurring themes that uh, has come up when I've talked to folks that are kind of in this uh, head of ML type of role is kind of balancing the practicality of your portfolio, but also kind of having some moonshot aspects of it that if slash one achieves significantly can, you know, make a big dent and, you know, can be kind of game changers. Is that, do you, do you think about it similarly and yeah. you kind yeah. of manage a portfolio in that way? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we do want to have a mix of more sort of short-term uh, quote unquote realistic uh, projects, you know, something that, we feel it's very doable. It's just going to take, you know, one quarter or two quarters or three quarters. But then there's also the kind of the longer horizon of uh, more sort of, yeah, moonshots, as, as you called it, um, or just explorations of features that would be extremely cool if we could do this or that. So what we, typically what we do is um, almost like the, the the old famous, you know, the Google 80-20 so we, we do have some uh, hack weeks and we have some people devoting a certain amount of their time to more of these uh, long-term uh, projects. Mm -hmm. um, and, but it's, but you also need a, a bit of a, of a balance. Um, um, and so, but so, yeah, typically the way I organize it is making sure that in any given quarter, we have 
some work done for some of these more long-term um, uh, projects. And some of it is just sort of researching new technologies, yeah. um, doing some uh, sort of just, just kind of mock-ups of how things could be if only we had this or if we, we only, only that had that technology. Are the, the long-term plays as equally product-driven as the, the short-term or are they, you know, do, do they come from the product teams? Like the, each, each of the product teams has their long-term vision or are they, you know, more driven by the opportunity created by the technology and, you know. What yeah, I would have. almost say it's, it's more like the, the latter. Like, so because the product teams already have a, a well-defined backlog and, and some of it is already very sort of forward-looking. And so the thought experiment is more about even in, you know, like a, the, you know, three to five years, not, not even, you know, one to two years, but like three to five, what, where could we be? Um, what are the, the general trends in society and in technology? I mean, frankly, like, you know, the whole COVID situation and working from home, that seems to, you know, it will, it will stay here for quite a while. So how does society change because of that and, and how can we sort of position square to help our sellers in that environment um, and also in general you know what kind of um, new forms of almost like human behavior are going to arise from these new circumstances mm, very cool very cool well marcel thanks so much for taking the time to chat if i do decide to start the sam you know oh yeah the, the linguistics podcast. yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, I can tell you some more anecdotes about about uh, funny languages like "gugur uh, imithir," where you cannot say "I'm standing in front of Sam." I would have to say "I'm standing northwest of Sam" or something. Uh, anyway, of course, this is all changed by by remote technologies too. But uh, yeah. yeah, but it's it's been a pleasure, um, and I thank you for having me um, on your on your podcast, Sam. All right, thanks so much, Marcel. Take care. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.